of really moving forward and out and a lot of planning and imagining probably. Maybe there's also the feeling of, I don't want to go. This is good. Life feels good here. I'm happy. I'm free. I'm safe. So maybe there's some holding on. So just seeing what it's like to sit in the middle. This is the middle path that we're walking, that we're practicing. Not grasping at too much, leaning forward too much. Not letting go completely. So just where where is that tension right now? Maybe feelings of excitement bubbling inside. Gratitude. Connection. Just meeting whatever's arising for you right now. From the seat of stillness.
for the last few moments, allowing yourself to take refuge in sitting with all of these other phenomenal practitioners. Feeling the strength and the holding of this Sangha that we've created with each other. Allowing yourself to feel the momentum of the practice in community, the intention of the practice in community. It's always so much fun to see the bubbling voices and faces smiling and people engaging out there this morning. And maybe if you're not feeling like that, that's totally beautiful too, right? Sometimes we really want to hold close this experience that we've had and might feel like staying silent still for 
the whole day. But we want to talk a, a little bit about that transition this morning, you know, leaving retreat, this really beautiful, rarefied, unique experience, um, going out into the world. And I love how in the, <laughs> in the group meetings, they're like, in real life and then retreat life, right? Like, <laughs> this can feel sometimes, you know, somewhat utopic <laughs> and unreal. This is real, though. You've done real work, and whether you know it or not, I think one of us said this the other day, whether you know it or not, your systems have really slowed down. And, you know, we tap into this sort of, the, this purity and this truth and the tenderest parts of ourselves and parts of ourselves we really don't like and wish we hadn't seen in the last few days. Right, so there's just this deeper knowing, there's an intimacy that arises. And so as you, you know, those next few steps out the door, it's sort of like, you know, the baby bird going out into the world, flying, flying, maybe in a slightly different way, being careful. The world is still moving fast. So even driving out onto Sir Francis Drake, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the lineup is really kind of funny because it's like, go, no, 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 go, no, no, right? (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's why you can't turn left out of the Spirit Rock um, (laughs) drive is because it's just too, you know, we're a little too weird when we leave retreat. (laughs) You can't do walking practice in Fairfax, you know, unless you, <laughs> you want some strange looks. So checking, checking in, realizing, being gentle, being kind, being tender today, if you can. I don't know what your life looks like today, but... Oh, did you get your phones back? Okay. <laughs> um... So those, those, those things, right? <laughs> oh. Being really careful about what you decide to take in today. I don't recommend that you check all of your emails and go on every social media site and, you know, just don't do it. I, selfie, I've been on retreat, right? <laughs> it, it might be a little more shocking than you realize, how we've gone from so being so used to it to slightly desensitized and numb to, wow, you know, these really beautiful, porous beings. Maybe even take your time in who you engage with and how you engage. Um, you know, we have a tendency to want to share every single micro moment, that walking practice, and I noticed the crunch of the leaf under my foot and you just need your best friend to know that right and then the insight you had from that crunch under the foot and really trying to hope they get it and watching their eyes sort of glaze over and (laughs) so this it has been special and maybe not everybody else is gonna feel the same way as you (laughs) They'll ask, how was your retreat? All they really want to hear is it was fine. 
<laughs> and I'm fine, right? Now, that doesn't mean that, um, you know, a lot of times people will ask the question of, well, I want to share this with everybody I know, right? Like, they need to learn how to be mindful. So how do I tell them that they need to learn how to be mindful? <laughs> Life will be so much better. So be, watch that, you know, watch that tendency to want to fix everybody now that you've found the truth and the light and the way. And really, it is about that, how are we showing up in the world? This is how people really see our practice. Not by us telling them how it goes, but how we show up. And one of the beautiful things has been on this retreat, I've met many, interestingly, fathers whose sons have turned them on to the practice. There's been a few on this retreat, and that's so powerful and beautiful. And sometimes that's just because, right? It wasn't, like I said, any kind of evangelizing, but sharing this experience of the heart being different. So um, one of the beautiful things, you know, you have been, even though you've been in silence together, you've been a huge support network for each other. Right, the, the retreat center itself has been in a phenomenal support network. Um, the fact that food is made for us, that's one of the things I hate the most is going home and shopping and cooking. It's so nice to just have that meal, <laughs> that healthy, love-filled meal. So, you know, there's been so much container support. So, huge encouragement to find sangha, find community, where you can. And we're going to do a little exercise um, in, a, in a few minutes where we'll break you up into maybe geographic locations. So if you haven't met anybody yet who's practicing and who might live somewhere near you, Midwest, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, we'll work on that. But really the encouragement to find people, spiritual friends, friends on the path. Mark mentioned that... Um, the Buddha quote about um, basically we are what we eat. You know, it, it kind of means that what we that which we frequently ponder upon that the mind becomes, and and as to who we surround ourselves with. And if we feel really alone in our practice, it's much harder. You know, that individual cushion sitting every day by yourself is hard. So if you can find local sangha, find people, and also what is starting to happen, which is so supportive and amazing for people that aren't in communities or areas that are, are really densely populated by Dharma is, are these online communities, which are super powerful. I, I think some of the, um, there's probably some information out there. I know there is. But even listening to Dharma talks on Dharma Seed, which the talks from this retreat will be on there. They're already up, actually. Um, so you can re-listen to... Um, what did you call it? The punk rock to sage? That's, <laughs> that's the title of the talk. <laughs> um, you know, there's all of these apps, 10% Happier, which I actually have a, a, a whole course on around the precepts. Um, there's Headspace. There's Realize Media. There's all, so much now, which is really beautiful. Um, Insight Timer, where you can kind of peer pressure each other with how many days a week did you sit, right? And you can let other people know that you've sat. So really, the encouragement is to, you have this momentum going, right? 
So right away, it's, a, it's really useful to create some kind of habit right away. So maybe that habit is merely the, um, the intention to maybe sit 10, 15, 20 minutes a day. Oftentimes we leave retreats and go, well, I'm, I'm used to sitting 45 minutes now and I'm used to doing that six times a day. I'm going to keep doing that, right? <laughs> I can, I've seen, I can do it. Be careful about the, you know, where, we, where the setup is. So maybe it's, it's 10 minutes and set the time of day. I'm going to do 10 minutes every day at this time. Or the intention of every time I brush my teeth, I really feel the sensations. I know what I'm doing. I'm seeing. I'm being careful. Some people I know just at a stop sign, a stoplight. Well, you know, <laughs> don't say too long. But just it's, it's just the recognition, a moment of mindfulness. These moments of mindfulness where we just we come back. Maybe it's eating. I don't know if, if some of you got into some maybe beautiful eating practices while here. So maybe the first few bites of a meal, we're just paying extra close attention. So seeing if it's not like, okay, that's behind me now, real life, as we, you know. <laughs> and uh, see how you can just infuse the practice throughout the day. Um, one of the biggest ones for me, um, as a, I was a single mom for almost 17 years, and uh, I couldn't always get to my cushion. You know, it just wasn't something that happened. So my ethical practice, my precept practice, was um, really what held me firmly and in my integrity with how I showed up in the world. So this, this idea of not causing harm to myself or other living beings. Now, did I fall? Of course, absolutely. Um, so the precepts are not a way to beat ourselves up or, you know, have, they're not commandments. They're not ways to um, shame ourselves, but beautiful guidelines to live um, and beautiful practice to uphold. And Tara's going to talk about them a little bit more right now. Um, but those are some of the thoughts that I have about taking the practice home. And sign up for your next retreat. It's a really good, it's a, no, it's for real, it's a good thing to do because we can leave and sort of say, oh, I'm going to do that again next year, right, or, or whenever. Um, and then the time just goes by, the retreats fill, our schedules fill. So if, ev- almost every time I leave retreat, I look at the schedule and I see, okay, where will this work? And I, and I put it in my calendar. Um, so at least I have my momentum going forward. Um. So that's it for me for now. Right, so as Joanna just mentioned, the one one way we take our practice into our daily lives is through the continued commitment to sila, ethics, or non-harming conduct. And so I'm just going to take us through the precepts um, that I wasn't here for the first evening, but I believe you all took together. Um, And I'll say them, and then you can just repeat them after me if you um, want to participate in doing that aloud. And a couple of them, or at least one of them, is is a little changed. Of course, we're not now um, 
undertaking celibacy for the retreat. Instead, we'll be in the third precept committing to abstaining from sexual misconduct. And a lot of people have questions about what that means. And um, just sort of in a nutshell, um, any sexual misconduct is anything that's harming to ourselves or others. Anything that might be exploitative or would cause us or another person turmoil. So it's really all of the precepts turn back to, is this harming to myself or others? And that's sort of the gauge. And um, it is a practice and a lifelong practice to explore for ourselves how we may step out of these, the range of non-harming conduct into harming with all of these precepts. So just before I go through them, I'll remind you the first is um, to commit to protect life. The second is a commitment to only take what is offered to me. So not stealing, not taking anything that's not freely offered. The third will be to abstain from sexual misconduct. The fourth is to undertake to commit only to speak the truth. So not to use false speech. And we can also in our hearts, sometimes many people expand this to not using harsh speech. The Buddha talked a lot about speech within the precepts that we take as lay people. The precept itself is often focused only on false speech. But the Buddha had a tremendous amount to say about avoiding non-harming conduct through speech. Many of us know how um, powerful speech can be. So we can take that into our daily lives as, as a practice to explore that. And, um, and the final one is the commitment not to use any intoxicants that cloud the mind or lead to carelessness. So this is a bit changed too, because I think in the beginning it referenced not using alcohol or drugs during the retreat. Okay, so I'll say them and please just, we'll do it in a call and response sort of way. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to protect life. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to protect life. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to only take what is offered to me. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to only take what is offered to me. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to abstain from sexual misconduct. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to abstain from sexual misconduct. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to only speak the truth. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to only speak the truth. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment not to use any intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to carelessness. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment not to use any intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to carelessness. So I just want to say um, briefly that so the Buddha taught the ethical precepts as a source of joy. 
as not a dogma, but as a, um, a way of infusing our life with joy. So I'm just hoping that this practice and all the other practices that you learned, took in, and underwent during this retreat bring you joy. And um, just wishing that you all turn back to the Dharma always, because I feel that you won't regret it. (laughs) And uh, it's been an honor to witness your practice, and it's supported my own, so I very much appreciate it. Good morning. So I've just been contemplating our sessions together in the yoga space upstairs and really have just so much gratitude and appreciation for your willingness to be here. And throughout the sessions, we worked with a contemplation, how is it now? And so I just invite you, even just in this moment, to just drop in and just check in with what's happening in your inner experience right now. And so I utilize this contemplation for myself throughout the day. So it isn't always possible that I get to have, you know, the delicious two hours of, three hours of practice between my yoga and my meditation. And yet, the idea of being able to sprinkle it throughout the day, and one of my teachers uses the phrase, short pockets often, is really being able to continue to just land, just wherever you are, at the stoplight, in the line at Trader Joe's, (laughs) the gas station, wherever it is for you, but having just a moment to drop into a few phrases of loving kindness, a few phrases of just checking in with yourself to see how you are and what's happening right now. Just this alone just has begun to really take my practice off of the cushion, off of the yoga mat, just into my daily life where nothing feels separate anymore. It's not in here and out there. It's just here. And I really have appreciated just seeing that. And that is just the, I think, fruition of just staying with coming back to the cushion, even if it's five minutes, a minute, whatever it can be for you. I know life gets busy and that happens. So just being curious and interested in just wherever this practice is meant to lead you. Again, we all have our our stories. Mark shared his beautiful story, which I'm so appreciative of, and so is Joanna. And I think we all know that we have those stories for ourselves of what leads us into practice, what led us here. And so just continuing to maintain that curiosity, I think is such a vital part of maintaining that, that juice, that fuel that propels you forward into the next to find your next teaching, next teacher, 
And knowing that will change over the seasons of our life. We'll have different people that we'll need at different times to support us. And I feel that is such an important aspect of whether it's in the yoga space or in the meditation space or wherever it might be for you, whatever feels like your guiding star at that time. So thank you for your commitment to be here. Again, your willingness to engage in everything that has been offered. And I wish for you just a continued life of curiosity and interest and commitment. So good morning. Um, I'm sad to see you go. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> this is now one of your spiritual homes. So if you're local or far away, you know it's always here. You know, and that you can tap into Spirit Rock Online. We live stream a lot of the community events down the hill. Um, listen to the talks, as Joanna said, and come back. You know, these retreats are very powerful, as, though, as, as now you've experienced. So, um, we all hope that we see you somewhere along this Dharma trail. It's a beautiful path. Um, so, and it's a beautiful practice. And as we've been saying, and as you've been seeing, it takes practice. <laughs> Been at it quite a long time. It takes practice still. <laughs> and uh, the other side of that is um, the practice is in you, right? The practice of these qualities of awareness, kindness, presence, patience, right? These are all something that are innate within us. We've been cultivating and growing them, but they're already within you. They're not something that you found at Spirit Rock that you will be bereft from when you leave Spirit Rock because they're in you. Right? We have the innate capacity to be aware, the innate capacity to be kind and loving and, and self-forgiving, um, the innate capacity to listen to our conscience and be ethical. Right? We don't always live up to that potential, which is why we practice. But please remember that's in you. You know, you might get, you might not even get as far as your car down the bottom of the hill, and maybe you opened your phone, you got a text, and you get really pissed off, and and then you think, shit, I just sat four days on retreat, and I've already lost it, and I haven't even left the grounds. And then you go, okay, that hap- how many times did I lose it in, in meditation? Lots. And then I come back, okay, take a moment, feel my feet on the ground, breathe, look around. Oh, it's a beautiful spring day. Okay, let's start again. Okay, maybe I'll just turn the phone off and, and, and pause before I respond, right? So, you know, the, the present moment is always forgiving. We can always return, always return, always start over. One of the things that I try to um, remind people of when they leave retreat, because re- retreats are very inspiring for our practice and they're a kickstart often for many of us to really commit to a, a more rigorous daily practice, sitting practice, integrated practice. 
And then over time it wanes, like just anything wanes. And um, as Joanna was speaking to, um, the thing I think it's most supportive for our practice is staying inspired. So listen to what inspires you, what motivated you to get here. Right? For me, over all these years, I still, what nurtures my inspiration is studying, you know, reading Dharma books, listening to Dharma talks, seeking out teachers and teachings, right? keeping that, keeping fueled. So it keeps me kind of my inquiry curious and, and, some, and seeking teachers who challenge me or stretch my understanding. That, that gets me, you know, kind of inspired to practice. And, and, and as Joanna mentioned, there's a, so many doorways now for, for accessing teachings, particularly online, but also in person. Um, so please make use of that because that's what's going to fuel your practice in the long term and including sangha finding like-minded people who value this stuff care about it who motivate you inspire you um, so and um, you know sometimes we come to retreats hoping that we get our, all of our questions answered my hope is that you leave with more questions than answers that, it, that you, maybe your questions get answered, but it opened up more possibility or more inquiry or more like, well, what is this thing called awareness? You know, I've been practicing mindfulness, but what is it that's aware? What is it that's awake? What is it that's knowing? What is the heart? What is love? What does it mean to be embodied? What does that mean as a visceral lived experience? What does it mean to be awake, to be free? Right? These deep questions we, we look at here, we don't necessarily resolve. What is the self? What is the nature? Who am I? You know, the Buddhists talk about not self, but I'm wishing myself love and kindness. What's up with that paradox? These are great questions. There's a great piece from Rilke says, learn to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or, or books written in a very foreign language. Love the questions themselves. You, would, you could not be given the answers because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything live the questions now at some day far in the future you'll gradually live your way into the answer so whatever your question is like make that alive for me my years of the question was what is awareness what is this thing and it's still mysterious what is it that's knowing right now these words so keep questioning keep inquiring and then please be realistic when you leave retreat. As Joanna said, like, you know, we've sat, I just counted up, we've, we've been sitting eight times a day, plus maybe, I don't know, five or six walkings, plus a movement, plus listening to Dharma teachings. That's a lot of practice. You know, in life, you know, 10 minutes is good, as, as Joanna said, you know. Um, so just notice, you know, just as you might have had unrealist, unrealistic expectations about being here, Notice any unrealistic expectations about going home. Well, I'm going to be this, you know, this bastion of parental goodness and purity, and I'm just going to be non-reactive to my children from here on out. You know, that might last, you know, today, <laughs> maybe tomorrow. <laughs> you know, so be be kind with your humanness. Right, that's partly the point of my talk yesterday. Was we're human, we're vulnerable. You know, and, and we struggle and, and to be patient and kind and forgiving and we mess up and we forget and we mess up and we remember and we get confused and we remember, oh, I can be mindful of confusion. 
So, no. Yes, Joanna wants to add one more thing. <laughs> Just one thing I thought of because I've found myself doing this often and spoken to people is don't um, make any big life changing decisions <laughs> <laughs> like today. Right, so if you broke up with your partner in this retreat in your mind, don't do that. Or don't quit your job on Monday. <laughs> or don't, you know, apply to grad school or, or whatever. You know, I'm not saying that that stuff might not eventually, maybe that's what's going to happen. But really that need to go, you know, you cracked the code and you're going to go do it. So just be watchful. Pay attention to that. Um, momentum. Yeah, give it a couple of weeks. Give it a couple of weeks. Talk to your friends. <laughs> Talk to your therapist if you have one and see how it sits. So, a silly piece for you. Um, some of you might have already heard this. Uh, it's about being real. If you can start your day without caffeine, be cheerful without and ignore your aches and pains. Resist complaining and boring people with your troubles. Eat the same food every day. Uh, understand when your loved ones are too busy to give you time. Take criticism and judgment without resentment. Conquer tension without medicine. Relax without booze. Sleep without drugs. Then you're probably the family dog. <laughs> you could be a Buddha also, but you're more likely to be a dog. <laughs> so, you know, let's be real here and start from where we are and be kind. You know, and maybe you start doing one of those things, you know, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so, um, so one story I didn't share yesterday that I want to share. So it's, you know, Joanna, Joanna mentioned about, you know, be watchful about becoming this Buddhist mindfulness evangelist, right? People don't really like to be proselytized. You know, we call this insight meditation. Often have, you often have the most insights about your significant other or your parents, or your kids, right? Again, just hold that to yourself, and, you know, just, just hold that, and, you know. So, um, I was, when I first got into Buddhism, I was this completely obnoxious, evangelistic Buddhist, and I wanted to convert all my family and friends, and of course they were like, <laughs> go away. <laughs> and I was judgmental and pious, and it was very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> for about 10 years. <laughs> Took a while to get over that, you know. That's, you know, there's a reason why I wrote a book about the inner critic because I had, you know, both inwards and outwards, you know. Anyhow, so as I mentioned, my, my family were freaked out about me doing into this journey and at some point when Jack Cornfield's book came into my, my mother's librarian and when, when his book landed on the bookshelves of the county library in, where are we, in Kent, um, and, uh, and, and, and her sister, her colleague showed her the book and, and she said, well, my son studies with Jack Cornfield. <laughs> In fact, he teaches with Jack Cornfield. <laughs> suddenly it was, it had made mainstream, like it was kosher suddenly. So, um, that turned, um, their, their feelings. It was like, oh, this must be normal if there's a book about it that's made it into the library. Anyhow, fast forward 20 years later. So I'm back home with my dad. We're in the pub in England, as you do. 
and uh, we're having this very beautiful, intimate heart-to-heart. He's in his late 70s, and he's doing a lot of life review, as can happen as we, as we age, and a lot of regrets. He had a very painful childhood, as I, I may have mentioned. And, um, you know, and just exploring some of the pain that he has, particularly around how he relates to himself from, from the, kind of the, the, the wounds of, all, of being fostered for so many years. And, um, and I, say, I say, you know, Dad, I know you know this, and it sounds trite to say this, but you really have to love here. Like, you have to... So I'm feeling all turned up because it's so tender, this conversation I have with him. And um, he says, I know, I know, I know. I said, well, you know, there's things you can do. I, you, know, you, know, you know I'm in this world where we do a lot of these practices of kindness and compassion and love. And, he said, and, I'll, and I said, I'll send you some links, resources and things. And, and, um, and so I, I talked about this practice of self-compassion. Kristen Neff developed. It's an eight-week course. It's a very profound healing on, on one's own self-hatred. And anyhow, he's, he's been going to this yoga class um, in his local village, tiny little village, Hamlet almost. And his yoga teacher, who is in the next village, uh, teaches this course. And there was a course happening that week that he signed up for. And he did it, an eight-week course in self-compassion. And, um, and he called me, I was in Mexico, he calls me, he never calls me. He calls me in Mexico, I'm like, oh shit, what's wrong, Dad? Hey, why are you calling me in Mexico? He's like, I just finished the eight-week course. It was really amazing. I learned so much about self-compassion and love and mindfulness. And and he said, I know it's just the beginning, and I've got a lot of work to do, and I'm signing up for the next course. And and he's 79 years old, and, you know, he's lived a very conventional life. And it was just beautiful. It was profound to see that transformation, you know. So... Anyhow, that's I wanted to add. Just round out that story, and um, you know, it's never, it's never. You know, sometimes people say, "Oh, I wish I'd found the Dharma and these teachings early." It's like, well, you find them when you find them, and that's the perfect time, you know, as it is for him at seventy-nine. So, a um, couple more things, and then we'll, we'll open up for questions. Um, uh, Make use, make you, so there's a lot of elements on the retreat that you can practice at home and that Joanna spoke to. Silence, you know, take, take a you know, silent meal or a silent half day. Um, sit in community, uh, you know, meditate, obviously. Do yoga, obviously. Um, study, obviously. Um, and nature, you know. I'm, how, how many of you appreciated the nature here this week? Like, right, like, duh. <laughs> like, you know, it's profound, it's beautiful, it's available, and not, not for all of us. Some of us live deep in, in the inner city, but you know, there's parks, you know, you know, jump on a train, get out to wherever the nearest piece of open space is. Um, it's profound. It's its 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 own temple. It's its own teacher. It's its own opening of the heart. It's a place we can feel peace and selflessness and joy and equanimity and wisdom. And so, make use of it. It's this beautiful free resource that we that we have less and less time in because of our screens, or we we're out there, but we've got our head you know headsets on. And so, please go into nature often. Um, I just was talking with some friends who are teaching a three-day course on working with the ecological crisis. And I'm part of One Earth Sangha that does beautiful work around educating the Sangha, the community, about the environmental crisis that we're in. And uh, there's three things that they're asking the teachers and the the community to pay attention to. And I've summarized it in this uh, acronym 
MSG, right? And the MSG stands for, because it's memorable, MSG, uh, eat less or no meat. You know, there's some significant things, right? The, the meat industry is a massive contributor to, to, to global warming. Um, eat less meat or go vegetarian or vegan. Uh, go solar, right? And if you don't own your home, you can switch your, P your, your utility bill in, in many places to, uh, to sustainable energy sources. So contact your, your energy company. And lastly, the G is for green transit, you know, less flying. Right? We often think, oh, there's nothing I can do, the thing's so huge. We can make a difference. And if you tell 10 people to make a difference, and they tend to tell people to make a difference, we can make a difference. It's not the only, you know, we need to solve it on the macro level, but we can make a difference on the micro level. And if our practice is really about non-harming, we also need to practice non-harming the earth, particularly for the welfare of those who are going to be impacted, which is mostly the poor. Um, and the last one is um, compost. Again, it sounds really benign. The most impactful thing you can do as a household is compost. This really makes a difference. So I don't want to preach, but I want—I feel like my duty to share that we need to include the earth as part of our practice. And lastly, um, keep the practice very simple. This, the, the, be kind, be present. Kind awareness. Compassionate attention. Warm-hearted, friendly awareness to ourselves to our loved ones, to, our, to strangers, to, um, to people we don't like, to the earth, to the world. Kind presence, starting here, right? the hardest place usually. So I want to leave you with a story that I love from Palestinian poet um, Naomi Shihab Nye, and it's about being in the airport. Um, it's called Wandering Around in Albuquerque Airport Terminal, which I do a lot because I teach in New Mexico a lot. And for those of you, how many of you are flying today? It's probably quite a few of you. Yeah, okay, this is particularly for you, but it's really for, for all of us. Um, and it goes like this. Uh, After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement, if anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days, doesn't one? Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled on the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight person. Talk to her. What's the problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I leaned down and put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly in Arabic. The minute she heard any words she knew, however badly used, she stopped crying. She thought her flight had been cancelled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the next day. Uh, I said, no, 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 we're fine. We'll get there just, just, just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call them and tell them. So we called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I'd stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling us about her life, answering questions. She pulled out a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugared crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and was offering them to all the women at the gate. 
To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Loretto, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. And the, then the entire then the airline, airline broke out free beverages from huge coolers and little girls from our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us apple juice and lemonade. They too were covered with sh- powdered sugar t- as well. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant sticking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old tr- country traveling tradition. Always carry a plant. Always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, that's the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, had seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. Not everything is lost. So it's very simple, right? It's just showing up, being present and meeting whatever's here. The person in front of us, ourselves, a stranger, a loved one. So, we'd like to open up for questions, particularly about going home, transitioning, practice in life, anything that's remaining for you. Please. I try. (laughs) I try. Um, What I tell people to do (laughs) is have it out of sight. You know, it's just like here. If it's out of sight, we're less tempted. If it's in sight, we start. We're in a long traffic light, or we hit traffic and go. Oh, I'll just you know. You know, sometimes we're using it for maps, so, you know, that's its own thing. <laughs> but, you know, we just get sucked in. And it's, you know, they say, you know, even talking on the phone, they say it's as bad as drunk driving. Um, so, um, but I know when I, when, I, when I don't, when I either turn it off, hide it, um, keep it in my bag, you know. One, I enjoy, enjoy the drive, and two, I'm more present. So, um, you know, the, you know, the data's out that multitasking doesn't work. And, um, you know, we think we can multitask. You know, I'm, I'm always in shock when I look at the drivers I'm driving by. Probably 50% are looking down, you know, that doing that flicking up and down, you know. And it's, it's crazy. So, 
so uh, the less we do that, the better, you know, out of kindness for ourselves and others. You know, several thousand people a year get killed from people texting and driving. Yes. Anything? Anybody else? Any any magic magic tricks? <laughs> Don't drive. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. Yeah, so the comments about uh, feeling spacey. Yeah, if you're feeling spacey, please don't drive. You know, really, I mean, seriously, like walk around, ground, do a fast walk, talk to someone, have some tea, have some food, like sometimes food is grounding. Um, you know, be, you know, it, it is, it is, it is a lot to speed up in that way. So, yeah, take your time. Yeah, you're welcome to stay here all day as far as I know. Um, just hang out and enjoy the land. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's the multi Do you want to get that? Do you want to answer that? Do you want to answer that? Yeah, I'll just say quick something quick, and then Joanna's going to say something. But uh, when I asked Joseph Goldstein about that, he said you can move uh, swiftly without rushing. The rushing is grasping, and that's what leads to the constriction of awareness. Sounds good. <laughs> Well, this is kind of like the the cell phone question, you know, because I'm probably the worst at being busy and (laughs) over, you know, not great at it. Um, But something that I've started doing is really, well, what's what's actually important? Because we can we can make everything a priority, right? And so, really, kind of evaluating priority and what is important to do today, and then. and that take, that actually takes a heart practice, right? Because so, oftentimes there is that grasping of wanting to do it all because we somehow think that's going to make our life better. So it, it does come with that craving quality, right? Of the more I do, the better my life's going to be. And we can probably pretty much all see that that's not really true. And then we also can tend to be afraid of boredom or slowing down or being alone or you know those things that that might imply if we put the busyness down so I think it you know again it just it's an evaluation of yeah what is what is something actually mean to me and do I need to do it has been helpful for me lots of hands
Yeah, no, that's a big one. I, I, when I first really took the um, not causing harm with our speech precept, I took on not gossiping. And my friends would always be like, why are you being so quiet? You know, like, what's up? You don't have something to add here, you know? And eventually they started to really like and appreciate it. Because what started to happen was they were like, oh, I know I can trust her because she's not going to talk about me or cause harm with her words towards me, right? So it was a, it was a radiating out sort of thing. I, I've slipped at times for sure. <laughs> um, but I think just like, like I was saying before, how we show up, people do start to catch on, right? So if we just disengage from that practice of gossiping, um, it's quite interesting. J- Joseph talks about a story. I think he, he took on a practice of not gossiping for a while. And he really has non- 90% of his conversations with people were squashed. Like he had nothing to say. <laughs> so, you know, how do we use speech is really so important and so vital. And, and oftentimes we're using something like gossip to pump ourselves up and feel better because we're in the know or we, you know have something to say. Um, so yeah, kind of see what it's like to not engage in it and how people respond. And there are wise ways to be in conversation um, around other people. Yeah. You know, you could be quite real, quite straightforward and say, you know, I, 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 I don't like talking about someone who isn't in the room. Which you know you might you know you're gonna cu- you're gonna come up against family norms right like it's okay to do that and you might say you know I just and you can say it's a practice I've taken on I, I I it doesn't feel great to me to talk about someone behind their back and um, and to be just straightforward about where you're at and and as Joanna said you know people might not like that but could also maybe understand that or even respect it um, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my whole friend circle kind of, I, ju- I dropped out of a whole bunch of social circles because that was always what was going on. Yeah. It's hard to drop out of your family, but. <laughs> the back? Um, so, uh, the frame that I would respond to that with is, um, so all these, all these tools and practices, right? Whether it's therapy or meditation or mindfulness or metta or patience or whatever, they're all skillful means, Skillful means as in ways to develop wisdom, awareness, kindness, reduce suffering, right? So they all have their place and they all have the limitation. Meditation is not a panacea for everything, nor is therapy. And, um, you know, therapy is, is really helpful and useful uh, for certain things and experiences that require an in-depth, you know, you could say analysis 
or conversation or inquiring or holding the painfulness of something. Um, and it's sometimes, you know, a lot of the stuff, a lot of our, you know, pain or challenges that we experience in life are relationally based, relationally uh, come from relational uh, suffering. And one of the best places to do that is to explore that and, and heal that is in a relationship dialogue, you know, where therapy is really helpful. So, um, you know, at times it's, it's, it's helpful to drop the story and just, you know, just let it go or feel what's underneath the story. Other times it's really helpful and necessary to go really deeply into the, the long history of a relationship that, that inevitably requires going into the story of it or exploring one's distorted story about it. So b- both are helpful, you know, and they just, they just have different s- skills to offer and, and useful at different times altogether. see it now from this perspective, so I'm going to do it like that. Even when I'm judging myself for not
this one. Well, first, I just want to say beautiful knowing, Mm. you know, powerful to see. Um, And it really sounds like it's coming from a deep, caring heart, right? This wanting, this wish for wellness always. Um, And then that's just bullshit sometimes, right? Like, no, I'm too mad to be nice right now. So um, a couple of thoughts I'm just having, and I, and I was thinking while you were speaking, um, is for me, I, what I, when I would act out of maybe that space that doesn't feel as helpful, my regret is so much worse than that energy that you're talking about that it might take to stop and do something differently. Regret kind of, you know, really sucks. Like, we can't take it back. We can't. So I started, through my practice, just started watching cause and effect. You know, I started watching. Oh, if I behave like that, if I speak like that, if I do that, then that happens, right? And so in this regard, it was like the pain that I was causing through being unskillful with my words, maybe, was far harder than maybe me being wrong, you know, or saying nothing um, and and really doing the internal work um, so that I wasn't then having to fix the insides and the outside, right? And in the meantime, we're imperfect, you know? I mean, we just keep going. And I, and I, you know, I know for sure that that intentionality, although impact might be there, the intentionality of a kind heart is, is evident, and then there's always repair, you know. There's always um, repair that we can do with the other person and with ourselves, forgiveness. So I don't know if that's at all helpful. But maybe you have something. Yeah. No, I was just beautifully spoken and, and you, you, you spoke poignantly to where, you know, it's, it's the razor's edge of practice, you know. And it's really, it's, what it speaks to is integration, we know much more than we live. And that's the painful, dis, you know, kind of bardo or discrepancy we live in. We know what the wisest thing to do. We know our better nature knows what to say and do when we're not reactive. And then we get reactive. We get triggered. We're acting out of old wounds and push buttons. And that's where we need humility and compassion and forgiveness and vulnerability. Not, not to excuse the acting out, and not to give license to it, but to know that we're human. And um, you know, Dalai Lama once said, if you're going to harm someone, not that you should, but if you're going to do something unskillful, let's put it that way, do it mindfully. Just to what John is saying, because if you're mindful and you do it, you really feel all of it. And you go, oh, that was really hurtful to s- actually speak my mind to that person. And I really don't want to do that again. If we're unmindful, we'll do it again because we're not attending, right? So the the beautiful awareness that you have is what leads us in a more skillful direction over time, even if we don't live it fully now, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah.
More questions? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> that's a that's a good title. <laughs> Market research. Then you read my earlier book on <laughs> the inner critic. <laughs> it's supposed to be provocative. Right. 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 Well, the more common one you hear is just let go. <laughs> just let go. And you want to punch them because you can't. <laughs> So yes, please want to make sure we have a gender balance with the questions. So. Let's see what comes out of my mouth and then we'll I'll pass it to the wiser teachers. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so loving kindness and compassion, they're qualities of the heart. And um, when we're open to, um, um, you know, caring, friendliness, and non-attached love. So just to go back to the basic definitions. 
and equally important to have them for ourselves as others. So the aim of the practice is not to just cultivate loving kindness and compassion for others more than us. It's, it's absolutely equal and to see the non-separation and the necessity of care for ourselves. So I think in the cultivation of those practices, part of that is about the balance and about seeing the boundaries. So the, the practice is, uh, is definitely not pointing us towards in any way becoming a doormat. Um, and um, there's four Brahma Viharas actually, um, and that translates into abodes of the gods. So it's these four um, states of mind that are wholesome and um, that we can abide in um, to bring us peace and joy. Um, there is loving kindness, the metta, compassion, which is loving kindness when it experiences suffering um, or sees suffering in others or ourselves. And then there's um, what we call sympathetic joy. The word is mudita. So when, we, when a heart that has loving kindness experiences good, sees good fortune in others, it feels happiness. Um, and then there's equanimity is the fourth. And it balances all the others so that they don't get out of line. It don't get, so that they um, don't fall into imbalance. And so that in the midst of all of these changing circumstances that include suffering, that include good fortune, that include all of our changing experiences, one can find in find within one's own being a sense of ease and peace. So the practice is actually a holistic one that does not teach us to be a doormat. And, you know, I mentioned Deepama yesterday as a, as, um, a pr- person, practitioner, teacher, who's been a kind of a hero for me. And um, she was uh, reputed to be extremely loving, highly cultivated in loving kindness in a way that was just visceral and you can feel. She was also very fierce, a fierce teacher and, um, you know, um, asserted very strongly the capacity for women to awaken as much as for men. Said, I can do anything a man can do when she was confronted actually by her teacher by some archaic teaching about um, needing to be in a male form to awaken. So this is, um, you know, um, this is not a practice about being a doormat, and it's it's very balanced and, and it's part of an overall overall system of practices and very much cultivating compassion for the self. Does anyone want to add? <laughs> no. 
Well, for me, these precepts, not, I won't say for me, these precepts are not set up, like I said, to be commandments or dogma, as Tara pointed to. These are really guidelines, right? They're guidelines for a way to live in a world that's possibly harm-free. Now, I mean, it's one of the things I loved about this practice is that also that nobody was going to judge me. Like these, these precepts are not to judge yourself through or to judge somebody else through, right? So um, there's this idea that I think about it. It kind of goes in line with the, your, what you brought up was this idea of the bliss of blamelessness is what it's called. Is if we are reflecting, um, you know, how, 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 has, how is this affecting me? Why am I drinking the wine? Or why am I killing the ants? Am I afraid of the ants? Is that why I'm killing them? Are they an inconvenience for me? Like, what is my relationship to the planet and other beings on it that puts me in a place where I feel like I need to to be okay? Right? Um, now again, I'm not I'm not judging that, um, but I've come up with some really creative ways. You know, I, I live in a big old Spanish house in Southern California with banana trees and all these things, and mice and rats like those kind of homes. So 12 years ago, I got cats. So this way, I was not <laughs> setting up traps. <laughs> I was not killing the mice or rats. Those cats were there for a week and there were no mice or rats. Now, I don't know what they were doing with them, but I do, <laughs> you know, I do hear that even the scent can, so, you know, I got, I got ant chalk for my ants, you know, and it's really fun to watch the trail turn <laughs> away from the ant chalk and back outside. But there are ways that once we start engaging with the idea of non-harm, um, they get kind of interesting. Right? So, that's all I have to say. Yeah, it's, it is. It's being recorded. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay, time for one or two more, and then we're going to wrap up. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So the question is about books recommended. Um, um, so Joseph Goldstein, who's one of the sort of grandfathers of this this scene that we're in, um, his, his last book was called Mindfulness. It's a big tomb. <laughs> it's 500 pages. So if you, if you want to deep dive, um, it's a beautiful exposition of this teaching from a deeper level. If you want something a little more user, you know, a little more accessible or user-friendly. Um, uh, my favorite book, Dharma book, that I started with, and I still think it's a great book, we've written 40 years ago, is um, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom, which, have you read it? It's by Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield, and it's just a really great overview of the path of practice from this perspective. Really accessible, really great book. Um, 
you know, Jack's written a lot of books that people like Path with Heart is often a, a way people enter into this practice with, with that teaching. And um, yeah, now so many books. Um, but there's some of the ones that pop out, but I'm sure others, you know, like, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to read different voices, like one of our elder teachers here, Sylvia Borstein, she writes in a very accessible storytelling style. So, you know, like she has books like, it's funny you don't look Buddhist, or don't just do something, sit there. Um, so just very kind of, very accessible, f- you know. Um, and then there's more sort of philosophical, not philosophical, but more sort of scholarly books. Like there's a wonderful monk that Joanna referred to, Analio, who's written a beautiful books on, on mindfulness called Satipatthana. Um, so, I mean, check out the library here and, um, you know, I'd say, you know, most books by this Insight Spirit Rock Teacher Network are very accessible. So, um, I think there might even be a reading list on the Spirit Rock website, I think. There might be one here, too, on the table. Was there one here, reading list? I think so. No. No. You know, when I, and this is, it's it's not from our tradition, but uh, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a book called Old Path White Cloud. And it's, we don't know, we, we can't possibly know everything about the time of the Buddha because it was an oral tradition for 500 years and then written on palm leaves and then did they have this huge diaspora, you know, all over the world. So a lot of scholars and academics are, you know, p- kind of piece together what we think life might have been like then and what the teachings were. Um, but Thich Nhat Hanh did this really beautiful thing and took a bunch of those scholarly in academic research and filled in the blanks a bit and made it, so it's, it's somewhat, you know, historical fiction in a way, but also a really beautiful tale of the life of the Buddha. I, I really appreciated it just for, for that kind of story. Yeah. Another great book is um, Buddhism Without Beliefs by Stephen Batchelor. It's, it's basically a you know, deep Buddhist book without the jargon. So you could give it to your family and they go oh that's what you're up to okay that makes sense that's very pragmatic okay I think we need to wrap up here Um, sorry that we can't get to all your questions Uh, maybe the last one at the back so what's your your question (laughs) oh I got a bad cramp (laughs) okay No, I think it's an important question, um, and it's incredibly sad. And uh, there does seem to be a, you know, uh, a, I think it's a small portion of the monastic community that's taken on this very racist, violent, aggressive stance that's whipped up a lot of uh, hatred towards the Rohingya. And um, I don't think it's in any way um, expressive of the community at large. I don't understand the dynamics, to be honest, why why that's been uh, allowed to, to happen, you know, 
Um, it seems it seems incomprehensible from my Buddhist background, and, and um, it's completely out of out of alignment with any Buddhist teaching. But why? What's going on politically, both within the Buddhist monastic sangha and how that's being dealt with or not being dealt with? I, I don't understand uh, how that's being tolerated. But um, it's a very sad seemingly anomaly to what is a beautiful and very pure tradition. So, but I think it's got a lot of very complex political, social uh, layers to it that I, you know, as an outsider don't understand. Yeah. But, you know, I think as, as compassionate practitioners, it behooves us to um, do what we can to support the Rohingyas because it's incredibly, you know, it's a, horrific genocide that's been happening and um, and incomprehensible to me you know and all the people I know who studied and lived in Burma and you know this uh, with such beautiful depth of practice and gentleness and you know but you know it's a complex situation I don't know if anybody has more insight I, I just look from afar with great sadness Okay, do you want to do geography? geography, geography? Yes. Oops. So this is going to be about meeting your local Sangha members, hopefully, possibly. So I'm just going to do this. We'll, we'll try to do this as expediently as possible. Um, how many Bay Area people do we have? Okay, so I'm going to do San Francisco. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.